Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, I am so thrilled that you're here this week because the next two weeks of this series, Love Dates and Heartbreaks, are two uh, of the kind of the weeks I've been looking forward to the most. We just sang this song a few seconds ago that um, in its repetition was trying to make a point that God is for you. We we use those words for you and kind of hear them in sentences, but to let that sink in really can do something to you internally, that he is actually for you in your relationship and that he wants and desires and created relationship to bring you life and to be rich and full of life. And if there's any area of our life where I think it's really stark between life and death, it's in the area of relationships. And so over the next two weeks, I want to help us experience the reality of this statement. You see, there's no such thing as a no-drama relationship. No-drama relationships aren't possible. That's not a surprise. But low-drama relationships are. Some of you may be tempted to tune me out because I just wrote that statement. But I've been living that statement in my house for almost a decade and a half, okay? And it wasn't because I'm a low drama person. It's because prior to me meeting my wife, I became a Christian and I took seriously the words that we're gonna look at this morning. And they radically changed the environment and the culture of what I expected in relationships. And it's literally shaped the house that we've built and how that we communicate with each other. And so I know if it can work for me, it can work for you. You've got so much more going for you than I do. You have hair, okay, so we can just at least start there. Um, you know, last this past week, my son, um, you know, decided he wanted to hang out in the middle of the night. And so he, you know, said, hey, let's meet up at 3 a.m. So I was in there, and he was rubbing my head, and he went from back here to up here, and he's like, Daddy, your hair, it's missing. <laughs> and because he's had the distinct pleasure in life of seeing me without my shirt on, um, he was like, he knew I have some hair here. And he was like, but you have hair behind your buttons. Did it move? <laughs> I'm like, yes, son, my hair migrated south. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so it's like his little bubble. So, like, you have so much more going for you than I do. And so this is what I think over the next two weeks we can venture towards. Not no drama relationships, but low drama. And then I think one of the most critical areas to foster low drama is in the area of communication. Like communication is hard. We mess up with it all the time. And today I want to give you a verse that I'll make sure gets loaded up in the app later. But it's one verse. It's simplicity is actually um, part of its power. And all I'm going to do, which is quite fitting for the words um, that we're going to look at this morning, is I'm just going to walk through the words in this one verse. And you'll find by the end of it, if you're willing to commit this and allow this to become your new standard operating procedure of communication, it has the power to change every single relationship, romantic, non-romantic, work, right, like acquaintances, It has the power to change your life. It's found in a letter written by Paul 
who was one of the most kind of prolific writers in the Christian faith. The Christian faith has two distinct books bound in one book called the Bible. It's the Old Testament, which predominantly Jewish scriptures. And Christianity is, in many ways, a fulfillment of Jewish promises. That's why the early church, the Christian church, was Jews who had converted, but it wasn't even a conversion to a different faith. They just saw it as a continuation of their faith. And so Paul is steeped in the Jewish tradition, and Paul, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish promises, ends up writing letters, and a lot of times his letters were based in that rich backdrop of where he'd come from. Fortunately, this letter he wrote for us today was to a group of people that were predominantly of all kinds of different backdrops. And so in those kind of letters, Paul would tend to be a little bit more, um, he would give a little bit more explanation, a little bit more explicit, because he couldn't draw on a shared knowledge of like, oh, you're reading this letter, you grew up in the same tradition I do, I'll take it for granted, and I'll build on that. So, and to the letter that he writes, that we're going to look at today, he writes it to a group of people in the city of Ephesus. And so today, we call that letter Ephesians. And this group was kind of a cosmopolitan group, they were an educated group. And they had experienced an incredible movement of God. They had experienced what would, in kind of theological words, would have been a revival. Something supernatural had happened in their community. People turned to Jesus. They, they embraced the church. Life is changing. Things are happening. Good is flowing into the community. And Paul writes this letter to say, hey, you've experienced the wow of the good news of Christianity which is great, but I want you to know how to walk out the how of that good news. Like the wow is good and great, but I don't want you to separate it from the how of the good news. And so this letter is filled with a beginning, just a recapping of the wow and the wonder of what we now call Christianity. But then he shifts to here's what this looks like in your life. And he, he covers a full range of topics, deep philosophical reflections on racism and how it's, it runs counter to the Christian faith and the Christian underpinnings, right, which unfortunately a whole group of racists throughout history have ignored those chapters and used the Bible to manipulate the text to justify what they're doing, right? And so he moves through these deep the, kind of theological, philosophical reflections, racism in the church, and then he gets very practical, and he starts talking about all the nuances of life, and he moves to the power of words and what we now call chapter 4. And in verse 29, he writes this phrase, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, not ironically so, every word he chooses in this sentence is loaded and is powerful. And so that's why I just want to focus on this one big sentence this morning. And here's my challenge at the very beginning. Regardless of what you believe, even if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, I can confidently say to you, if you memorize this passage and you put this passage into effect in your life, it will change your life. No questions. It will change your life. The first thing that Paul does in this passage that really shouldn't be skipped over is at the very beginning when he says, do not let any unwholesome 
come out of your mouths. A couple different things there. One, he doesn't say out of your head because all of us know what it's like to have a thought run through our mind in the midst of a conversation with someone and we want to say to them, you're an idiot, right? Or what is wrong with you? Or how did you enter into adulthood and make it this far? Like, we all want to say those things. They may flow into our mind. He's not stopping. He doesn't say what comes through your mind. Notice he puts a gate somewhere else, further down line. He puts the gate right before your mouth. He says, do not let come out of your mouths. How many moments in our lives have we ruined derailed and damaged by what we let come out of our mouth. And this very simple start to this passage is a reminder for you and to me, something that I think you and I need to be reminded of, that you have a choice in how to use your voice. Somewhere along the line, you may have fell into a trap or a ditch or this is just how I am. You know, I'm snarky. I'm quick-witted, I'm sarcastic, I, you know, throw verbal jabs, I can't help it, it just, boom, there it, there it goes. Like some of us discovered that skill set in teenage years, and we never, like, unlearned it, we just maximized it, and we're really good at stabbing people with our words. And he, and he reminds us at the very beginning of this verse, you have a choice. So if you think you don't, I was like, I want to encourage you. You actually do. And then, in the remaining words that he has left, he's going to give us what those two choices are. He says, any unwholesome talk. Now, the New Testament letters written by Paul, um, you have to realize Paul was brilliant. He was a genius, arguably one of the great minds of the ancient world. He was trilingual. Um, he was well-read. He would have probably have been one of the greatest Jewish thinkers had he not converted to Christianity um, in his 30s. And so he doesn't write this letter in English. It's translated into English. And most of the time, that's okay. But this is one of those verses where there's so much emphasis placed on each word he chooses that we can actually just in the English miss it. And so this is why I actually want to kind of double-click on a couple words that I think will be helpful for us. Because when he says unwholesome talk, that actually doesn't capture it. This word is really unique. It's only used one time in this way in all of the letters that any of the New Testament writers write. Okay? And so anyone reading this letter would have instantly noticed the weirdness of this word and how it was being used. It would have, been, it would just, it would have screamed at you. Right? And what he does is he takes a word that would be common in um, the kitchen or in construction, and he applies it to words. Visually, this is the word he's referring to. Rotting, decaying, breaking down. If it was used in the reference to food, it would be rotting. If it was used in reference to a building or stone, it would be decaying. It's never seen in any, any of the ancient literature in the New Testament. This word is never used for anything that's not a material. So the fact that he chooses it, to use it for words is on purpose, and it creates this visual image because none of us would ever put anything rotting in our mouth. And Paul's point is if you would never allow anything rotting into your mouth, 
why would you ever let anything rotting come out of it? Why would you ever? You, we get grossed out when we ride by and see a vulture. Why would we ever want to be a vulture with our words? That's right. He says, do not let any. He doesn't say, hey, just a little bit of decay is okay. He says, any, none should be allowed. He makes it really stark. In our household, one of the ways that we use this phrase, because this is a big passion point for us in our household, um, in our marriage, in our parenting, um, we actually use the word reckless to capture the destruction aspect. So sometimes we'll say things, and it can be uh, very like innocent sounding. You know, for example, I may say, everyone, da 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 And someone in my household would say, hey, that's, that's a little reckless. Is everyone in the world really doing that to you? Like, well, no, it's like two people. <laughs> but feels like everyone, right? It's like, no, that's reckless. Oh, okay, yeah, you're right, it's reckless. Because we want the weight of our words to be evident and how we label it. So it's reckless words because reckless words destroy. They damage. And just because we can't see the physical damage of our words doesn't mean there's not. Because all of us have been on the receiving end of unwholesome, reckless words. As a pastor, part of the thing that I sometimes found myself doing is sitting across from people and listening to their storyline. And it is not even surprising to me anymore how people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s are still, still carrying around the weight and the power of words spoken to them in the first decade of their life. Tell a kid they are worthless, they will never be anything. And no one will ever be able, in a physical exam, be able to see those words. But I've sat across from 60-year-olds who still feel the weight of their father not saying certain things to them. Or their mother uttering things to them that they never, ever forgot. You don't see it as a scar, but it's marked in their heart. So we know what this will do. Because some of us are hindered in our lives, in our relationships, because what's been said to us. And they last, it sticks, and they linger. And Paul, who spent his entire letter kind of unpacking what is the Christian life, how, look like, when he finally gets the words, he says, no, you have a choice in how you're going to use your voice. And one of the choices that is strict, strictly commanded, prohibited for Christians is unwholesome talk, reckless words. He makes this really emphasis, right, when he says, but only. He doesn't just say contrast with the word but. He says, only what is helpful. He says, so here's your choice, right? Hurt or help. That's what your words are going to do. You may not see it, but you better seize the weight and seize the choice and if you're a Christian, Paul says, your words should be what's helpful. He says, helpful for what? For building others up. Not helpful for making you feel better because you finally got it off your chest. Not helpful because they needed to hear this. Right? 
helpful for building others up. Now, Paul is so intentional. I won't bore you with all the nuances of what he's doing here, but there's like interconnected tissue and in how all this is, the word choices he's using, the contrast, unwholesome, and the, the words he's using for helpful and good and life-giving. And he's saying for building others up. And what I appreciate this is he doesn't stop there. He actually goes beyond there because this isn't hype. Like we're reminded every year, you ever watch The Voice or American Idol, that people have been built up, right? They get up there and they're like, and I will always. I mean, it sounds like a, a middle school cat playing in a string concert being murdered simultaneously. It's like horrible. And then they get done and they're, and then it cuts to the judges and the judges is like, good Lord, what was that, right? And, and then what, what happened? Tell me about your story. My mama, when I was three, told me I had the voice of an angel. And then the judge is like, yeah, a fallen angel, right? And it's just this weird exchange. And someone built them up. They walked on that stage and were handed a microphone, and they believed they could sing. But they could not. So when Paul is referencing building others up, he's not referring to that. That's called lying. <laughs> but for most of us, if we're not careful, our culture does that a lot. We have a culture right now that's very much hype-oriented. It's like you can do anything. Dream it, you can do it. I'm like, probably not. I know them. I don't think they could do that. That's not helping them. That's only going to discourage them. There are some things I should never be allowed to do. And it's not because I dream too small. It's because I know I am not capable of doing that. And he adds this line according to their needs. Right? It's this deeper understanding in communication, right? I would never tell a fish it was born to fly because it would die. And this idea that when we interact with others relationally, what's driving us, what ultimately is helping to guide the words that are helpful for building them up is that they are the starting point where they are in the moment. And so we understand who people are. Well, to do that, we've got to listen really well. We have to ask clarifying questions. Right? I don't know if you notice this, but sometimes we as human beings let other people talk so that we can say what we've already decided we want to say. And it doesn't matter what they've said. We weren't listening. We were making sure we had memorized the line. We were going to drop on them like a bomb when they finally stopped opening their mouth, right? But if we're going to do it according to their needs, then they have to be the starting point. They have to be what guides us, which means it's not just what we say. It's how we say it. 
Right? So my own household, I'm frequently reminded of this because I have one of the sweetest, most charming, thoughtful little girls on planet Earth. If you've ever spent time with her, you've experienced that. She is like a ray of sunshine that happened to wake up on its best day ever and like at the simultaneous, like win the lottery while doing it. I mean, she's just so happy. Like she's just, she went shopping with my wife last night and she was like, mommy, I feel butterflies in my legs. Like she's just so excited just to be with mommy because it was dark and they were shopping, right? At one of those stores that have smelly stuff. And she walks in, and Jenny's like, it is so funny whenever people interact with her. Like, every single year of um, her student-teacher, like, parent conference, the first word out of every teacher's mouth since she's been around teachers is, your daughter is so enthusiastic. <laughs> We're like, yes, we know. We live with it, okay? Um, so, like, she's Tigger, and I'm Eeyore, Okay? <laughs> Like, I'll wake up in the morning, and it is not the best day over. If it's really bright, I'm kind of like, man, <sighs> right? Like, I like cloudy days. I enjoy that. And, and so, like, she's Tigger. I'm Eeyore. And if I'm not careful, I will parent like Eeyore with my Tigger. I want her to stop jumping, stop bounding, stop smiling, stop being so dang happy because there's not that much to be happy about. It's like, did you watch the news? Do you see what's happening? But no, I have to very intentionally, because I learned very early on, my little girl is very impacted by how I use my words. It's not my words. With her, it's how. It's, it's how I say it, not what I say. And so last week, I said something, and I was more Eeyore-ish, and um, I don't know about you, but I have like a tool belt proverbially. And one of the tools when I don't know what to do, when I'm in a moment where I'm really confused or feel overwhelmed or feel way in over my head, like I don't know how to properly fix or say or solve something, I reach for the one tool that's always in my tool belt called the hammer. And I bring the hammer down because the hammer can just stop it, right? Kids are screaming. People are losing their minds. And I'm like, hold on a second. And they're like, whoa. It's like, oh, he brought the hammer out. Problem is, is my little girl is not a nail. Right? Like, she is some one of them, like, really complex bolts. You know, where it's like, I don't have one of them. It's like the star with the little circle in the middle that they always have in bathrooms as if somehow there is a huge, like, bathroom stall theft industry that's arisen. So we got to really lock down the bathroom stall doors. Have you ever noticed bathroom stall doors? I'm like, what engineer created that thing? I'm pretty sure NASA has got the screwdriver for that thing. Like, I understand if it's a missile test and we're trying to protect nuclear weapons here, but this is a bathroom stall door. That is my little girl. I'll have that little thing. In my tool belt, I got a hammer. And guess what? You can hit that thing with a hammer all you want, and it does not make it change. So I had one of those moments with, with my daughter. And the moment I brought the hammer out, I saw her shut down. And in my head, I was like, you're a fool. That's not how you lead her. The way you lead her is not a hammer, Chris. It's that Torque 7 number 5-3 hexagon with a star in the middle. You know that. You've been doing it for 10 years. So what did I do? I got her in the car. We went to the grocery store. And we got, when we pulled back up, I had to look at her and say, Ella, 
Daddy is so sorry for how I said what I said earlier to you. It was wrong, Pumpkin. It was wrong. I shouldn't have said it like that. Please forgive me. And after she said, Daddy, I forgive you. We don't say it's okay, because if you say it's okay in our household, we say, no, it's not. That's why I'm apologizing. So it's like, it's okay, Daddy. No, it, no, Pumpkin, it's not okay. How I said it was wrong, and I'm sorry. And then, after we had that moment, then I said, hey, I really care about you, and sometimes Daddy's care for you out extends his capacity to know how to lead you. And so can we work together to figure this problem out? Because I don't know if I know the answer. I don't know if you know the answer, but I think together we could probably figure this thing out. And we sat in the car for like 10, 15 minutes just chatting because like that had been repaired. And we were on to other problems. She was like, Daddy, I've got this other problem. Can you help me think through this? And I was like, yeah, because it turns out that was the problem all along but I never knew it because it didn't look anything like that when she brought up the issue we were dealing with. She was like, this is why this happened, because of this. And like, if you want to tell me I love you, ask me to help you solve a problem because I love solving problems. And so that's what we jumped to. I'm like, oh, baby girl, you just gave me a problem. Let's strategize around that problem. And this is what we did. Best moment ever. But I totally botched that because it's not just what you say, it's how you say it, according to Paul. But here's the reality that I know, is that even in the midst of all of this, there are some times where what we say and how we say it still doesn't resolve it. And ultimately, next week, that's what we're going to lean full into, and I'm so excited about next week. But I want to give you a little bit of a preview. Notice that Paul says, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. At the end of the day, there are two people in any conversation, at least. And you have a responsibility to be helpful, not hurtful. You have a responsibility to build them up according to their needs. But there's also a responsibility on the other side in how they listen. And ultimately, that's the part that I'll drill into next week. But so that you know that I'm aware that it's there, let me give you a process that I use just briefly. I call it the pig and the pearl. The pig and the pearl is based on a comment Jesus made when he was talking about dealing with conflict and people. And he uses this analogy about don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, pearls are expensive, really costly, very valuable. And swine are, make really good sandwiches, right? And so, like, what does he say if you cast pearls before pigs, swine? He said that they may turn on you, they'll trample it, and they may hurt you. The, the pig ends up attacking because what they see as you casting a pearl is some like, like aggressive action and they charge you. Because I don't know if you know this, but like wild pigs are really aggressive. They're not something you want to bump up against out in the wild. Right? Bacon looks all cute and smells good, but not in the wild. 
And so Jesus makes a point that, that I use to kind of break into two pieces as a process when I'm thinking about the other person. One is, do I have a pearl? Is it true? Have I intentionally tried to understand it from their side? Is what I'm saying right and good and helpful and useful for building them up according to their needs? Does it pass that test? Is it a pearl? Not one of those fake Walmart ones, but is it true? But that's not enough. I have to then ask the question, which I never let them know that I'm asking, by the way, are they a pig? They may be a pig because of circumstances, because I don't know if you notice, when someone is really stressed out and they've had the worst day ever, that's not normally the time to bring up the conflict in your relationship that you've been holding on to. Hey, I can tell that you seem so crushed and overwhelmed beyond what I've ever seen. Can I talk to you about our finances and how you've been overspending? Right? Sometimes the pigness, the swininess is circumstantial. And so there's an element of like, okay, are they a pig because of circumstances? Yes. Okay, then I'm going to hold my pearl. It's useful. It's helpful. It'll build them up according to their need. But this is not the moment for it. And then sometimes they're a pig because of the character. And they've got a pattern. Every time they've been confronted, they get defensive, they turn on you, they get aggressive, they blame shift, they guilt trip, they shame you, and they bring up the other things as if somehow your, your willingness to bring up the one thing you've been working on that is a pearl gives them justification to bring up the 15 other things and your mother-in-law. Right? Like, it's just like, okay, well, that's, well, I'll see your weapon and I raise you three more nuclear weapons. Right? If that's the typical pattern response, then you're probably dealing with a pig for character issues. Doesn't mean that you can't have conflict, but it does change how you're going to deal with conflict, and that's what we're going to look at next week. But as we're thinking through how can our words be helpful, not hurtful, the pig and the pearl is a really good practical kind of gauge for is this a moment? Do I have a pearl? Are they a pig? Circumstance? Character? Flowchart? Yay or nay? Because communication is at the core of great love. Communication is also what turns dates into lifetime commitments. And it's also the reason there's heartbreaks. But Paul leaves us with one other words, and this to me is probably the most powerful things for those who are Christ followers because he gives us a vision. And there's an invitation that's present in it. He says, that it may benefit those who listen. On the surface, remember, this wasn't written in English. On the surface, it looks like it's just a repeat of helpful, but it's not. The whole premise of this letter has been rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. As in a way of anchoring and reminding us of that, Paul chooses to end this statement with this word benefit that's the same word for grace. So it's not benefit. But it's kind of an awkward English construct to say that it may grace those who listen. That doesn't necessarily work in the English language. But that's what he wrote in the language of the day, which was Greek. He said that it may grace those who listen. Because Paul believed that those who had been radically transformed by Jesus, who had experienced the grace and the goodness 
and the forgiveness of God, it would change how they speak. It would change how they use their words. And that literally when we open our mouths, it's like people are, are hearing heaven in our voice by how we speak. I believe, even if you're not sure about religion, you've heard heaven before. It's the person, maybe when you were in elementary school, and it was a teacher who believed in you, who called out something that no one had ever seen before. Maybe when you were in middle school and high school, and it was a coach, and they brought out the best in you. Like, maybe it was your spouse and something they've said to you that changed your life forever. Maybe it was a mentor. But I think you've heard heaven before. And you've felt hell before too. And Paul says, imagine as Christ followers, if when we opened our mouths in our homes with our kids, if what they heard was heaven. Imagine if the students we taught and the way we responded to them, they heard heaven. I mean, imagine if just for a day or two, we just absolutely committed to being people who only let things come out of our mouth that's going to be helpful for building up others according to their needs. I would argue that in this culture, in this moment right now, it might be the most powerful, refreshing thing people could hear. Because as we'll talk about next week, we live in a culture that, that has more emphasis on division, has more emphasis on weaponizing words, that it smells a lot like sulfur. That's the culture we live in right now. And Paul's invitation to us is, man, imagine if we walked into the spheres of influence that we have absolutely committed to being people whose words are helpful for building up others according to their needs. And in the process, we leave people better as our driving force. It would change the world. And it may take a while to change the whole world, but I can guarantee you it would change your world and the world of people you interact with. Your marriage, your kids, your coworkers, even your enemies would be different because of it. Why? Why does he call us to that high standard? Because of people who've tasted the grace and the goodness, the evidence of that goodness and grace should really be all around us and how we talk. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the power of words, for the way that words can be used and leveraged. I pray that people would hear heaven and the sounds of our voice. And the places in our lives where right now it's marked by rotten, unwholesome recklessness that you would bring repair. But help us this week, Jesus. Commit Ephesians 4.29 to memory. Help us this week to be people who practice Ephesians 4.29 in our conversations. To ask the questions in our minds 
instead of rehearsing in our minds what we're going to say, that we ask, what do they need to hear today? And Father, thank you that you don't just give wisdom for the good moments, but that you also help guide us, lead us, and prepare us for the conflict ones too. And because of your grace, we can navigate both. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today. I I hope that this was um, helpful, that was hopeful, and that it sets you up for us to come back next week and lean into those hard conflict moments. And so I really look forward to seeing you back here next week. But in between, I want to really challenge us to let that verse sink in. And so as we wrap up today, our, our team is going to lead us in a song called Evidence. It's just this call to imagine and to see the world around us as glimpses of heaven, of his goodness, his faithfulness, and that we would open our mouths and that our words would sound like heaven too. And I pray that in this, that even as you have maybe conversations that come to mind that this week that maybe weren't, you just would allow God to, to give you grace in those areas as you say, God, I'm so sorry for that conversation. And that you would find in you a renewed strength to go back into this week committed to being people whose words are helpful. So I want to invite you to stand. And our team is going to lead us in this song. And then afterward, Dallas 